Hi, good day there. Uh, welcome from sunny London. Um, this is the uh, Travel Companion Podcast. Uh, we talk about sustainability, we talk about travel, we talk about responsible travel, wellness travel. Um, special guest today is Professor Geoffrey Lipman. He is based in Brussels in Belgium and he is co-founder at the SunX program. And we will talk about climate-friendly travel. A quick preview. It's fantastic to, to meet you. Thank you so much for agreeing to do the podcast. That's much appreciated. No, thank you. Thank you for considering it. I'm really very delighted and, and flattered and, and keen to do this. Brian, Brian, I know it's a very difficult situation for everyone, but um, it might be a good opportunity for people as well to listen a little bit more to on-demand radio while they have the time. So I think it's... Um, a good moment really to talk about these issues and uh, I, I, obviously I saw what you wrote uh, about the uh, pandemic and how uh, these principles should be really applied to addressing climate change so I thought it would be a very good moment to really have you on. Well I appreciate it and, and just to be clear I mean my focus has been and is mm -hmm. the intersect between climate change and travel. So Professor Lippmann has a long list of credentials. Uh, he was president of the World Travel and Tourism Council, that's the WTTC. He was uh, executive director of uh, IATA, assistant uh, secretary general at the UNWTO, which we all know. And he was also the UNDP administrator. Um, Geoffrey is now president at the International Council of Tourism Partners, that's the ICTP. And as mentioned, he is co-founder at the SunX program. And SunX stands for Strong Universal Network. And you can find more information at www dot thesunprogram.com which I'll put in the show notes it was absolutely fantastic to have him on the show um, if you would like to support the podcast please go to our website that is uh, podcast.earth and without further ado here's the podcast with Geoffrey Lipman so I'm speaking with uh, Professor uh, Geoffrey Lipman is, do I pronounce that uh, correctly or yeah yeah absolutely and um, from what I understand, you are the co-creator of SunX. Uh, you're based in Brussels. And SunX, from what I have read, is a, a system, a new system uh, for tourism destinations and stakeholders to build climate resilience in line with the targets of the Paris Agreement. And you do this for climate-friendly travel. Please interrupt me if I'm saying something that's totally out of order there. No, I, I wish I could say it's as succinct would be that. <laughs> right. And, and I, see, I, hear, I see and hear that this is a program that was inspired by uh, a gentleman called Maurice Strong, who was the Secretary General of the Rio Earth Summit in 1992 and one of the founders of Sustainable Development. And um, I understand that uh, you have been collaborating on green growth with um, Felix Dodds uh, on sustainable development. Um, uh, you're both the co-founders of the project and there's a circle of collaborators uh, around the world. Still correct or? Still correct. And if I can, let me just uh, say a word about Maurice Strong for people who may be listening who who aren't familiar with him. Absolutely. Um, because I consider it incredibly fortunate in my life that I I ran into Maurice Strong actually in 1990 I first I met him when he was preparing for the Rio Earth Summit right 
And um, Maurice Strong was an incredible human being. He died um, just about a week before the Paris Climate Summit in 2015. Mm -hmm. And um, the summit started with a a, um, a one-minute silence uh, with, a, with um, a testimonial from Achim Steiner, the former head of UNEP and Deputy Secretary General of the UN, yep. um, saying that uh, sustainable development had lost one of its architects. Mm-hmm. And um, Morris Strong was a Canadian. He left school at 14. Okay. Um, he, when he died... Um, I would say he was the most influential person on creating the institutional basis for the SDGs and for all of the activity on the climate. Mm-hmm. And that may sound like an incredibly um, uh, strong, no pun intended, strong statement. Yeah. Um, but um, he, when he died, he had 60 honorary doctorates and he never finished high school. Mm-hmm. So it's a sign of the recognition of society, yep. this man's contribution. He was the Secretary General of the Stockholm Earth Summit in 1972, the first one, right. uh, which came out at the same time as the Club of Rome's Limits to Growth um, treatise. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of involved in putting this thinking into the then- um, evolving United Nations global multilateral system. Mm-hmm. And and also, not just into that, but parallel to the business world, because he was a founding member of the board of the World Economic Forum. So he's a very interesting man combining environmentalism with business. Yeah. And that- um, he did the Stockholm meeting. He became, it created UNEP. Right. If I can just take two or three minutes to sort of take you through this incredible career. No, absolutely. Go ahead. Yeah. He um, he became the first secretary, executive director of UNEP in um, in Nairobi. He actually put that as the UN's first organization based in Africa. That was quite deliberate. Mm-hmm. He was involved in the Brundtland Commission. Yeah. Um, he, the, which, which created the definition of sustainable development. He then became the Secretary General of the Rio Earth Summit, which was the biggest gathering of heads of state, and created Agenda 21, which was basically a strategic plan for the 21st century mm-hmm. for, for the planet. Um, and during that time, he was responsible for creating the UNFCCC, the, the climate agency, mm-hmm. yep. and the IPCC, the scientific parallel to that. I don't know if he was um, uh, quite in- inspirational. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I met him um, what was late in his career um, in 1990. I had just become the first president of a a then um, emerging organization called the World Travel and Tourism Council, which was a business leaders forum created by the chairman and chief executives of 25 of the biggest companies in the travel and tourism sector, Mm -hmm. all of the big players. And it was one of those organizations where they were personally involved. Um, And... And my chairman, 
was also on the main board of Coca-Cola, which was heavily involved in the Rio Earth Summit. Okay. And and our mission at the time with WTTC, which is now the most successful uh, travel and tourism organization with about 200 involved major companies, chairman and CEO, was to was to get the numbers on how big the industry was and, and how it's intersected with society in general. Now, when you read routinely that travel and tourism is 10% of the global economy, yeah. what we were doing in those days was the basic research to demonstrate that. Those figures didn't exist. And we produced those in WTTC. Yeah. And during that time, it became clear to me that if we're going around talking about how big the industry is, mm-hmm. uh, we should get involved in this emerging Earth Summit, which was talking about how business should deal with its impacts. Mm-hmm. And through my chairman, I met Morris when he was setting up the Rio Earth Summit in Geneva. Yeah. Uh, we we liked each other and. He invited me to the summit. I went. I was one of the few travel and tourism people actually in Rio. Mm-hmm. And I guess I became imbued with the whole issue. And um, I came back. We built a green component of the World Travel and Tourism Council. We opened a research center. Uh, we started the first green certification movement in travel and tourism called Green Globe at the time. Okay. Yeah was quite revolutionary in the in the these were the mid 90s mid 90s okay and we took agenda 21 and created a sectoral analysis for travel and tourism mm-hmm. and with morris's organization the earth council in costa rica and the un world tourism organization we held a series of regional events um, in which we kind of spread this message of the increasing importance of what at that time was sustainable development. Climate wasn't the critical issue. Mm -hmm. But it was the critical issue for Maurice Strong. I have a a BBC interview of 1972 in which he actually said that um, this will be the defining issue for humanity. And and in those days, he used the words existential for the climate crisis. Right. He was a visionary. He was... He was a huge visionary. And and just to give you one last example, Mm -hmm. you know, today, and it's incredible that we have Greta Thunberg, who's really amazing in the way that she's she's putting this message into the public domain. He had a nine-year-old girl at the Rio Earth Summit, uh, Severin Suzuki, who gave a very similar message to the 1,000 attendants and 124 heads of state who were present in Rio. So Morris did all of those kind of things. And at the end of his career, he was very interested in travel and tourism. He had been involved in, in hotel ownership at some stage. And he was living at that stage in China. He set up a company in China. He believed China would be the leader in solving these issues. He did not think it would be Europe or the United States. Mm-hmm. And um, I worked with him in China for the last two or three years of his activity. I was still in Brussels, but I traveled out there a lot. And um, at the end, decided that I wanted to set up a- an organization to to keep this vision of his going. Mm-hmm. 
and hence we created, he wasn't very keen that we called it the Strong Universal Network. I managed to persuade him that that would give it a lot more, uh, a lot more power than if I called it the Lippmann Universal Network. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a strong universal network. That's what SunX is uh, standing for, correct? Yeah, yes, it was It was just Sun originally, and, and we threw in the X yeah. um, a little later in the game to remind us always that climate change is existential. It's a, it's a bit sort of twee, but, you know, that that's why it's Sun X. And um, it, it truly is taking Morris Strong's vision that we need to respond constructively to climate change, mm -hmm. because if we don't respond, we will not survive as a species. He was very clear on that, and I believe that. Yeah. Um, and the travel and tourism sector is an immensely important part of the global economy. Yeah, you mentioned 10%. Huh? I mean, that was also mentioned at the last World Economic Forum as well, those figures again. It has got a massive impact on people's lives. And if you change that, it has a mass massive impact directly as well uh, on people's lives, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And and it's not just the, you know, the sort of the figure. It's the fact that everybody either does it or wants to do it or did before the current uh, C-19 crisis, mm -hmm. um, it, it's also because it's a huge advertiser and it's, it's, it's involved in infrastructure, you know, railway stations, ports, mm -hmm. uh, airports. All of these are the, the components of this travel and tourism ecosystem. And then it affects people at destinations. Uh, we've always argued since the early part of this century um, you know, it's a great uh, contributor to the reduction of poverty because developing states, it's a much more significant part of their overall economy. Yep. And people travel from rich countries to poor countries and, and transfer wealth, you know, sort of they don't have to manufacture anything. They take the money out of their pockets and they stick it directly into the economy. Absolutely. So it has it has many, many characteristics which just you know the 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 bold the bold figure of 10% doesn't give this message it has the huge supply chains involved in building aircraft and 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 yeah. you know cruise and if I may ask something directly on that topic, there's there's quite a few organisations that say, well, you you should not um, fly, uh, for example, but um, that has a direct impact on those economies which are not very strong that are missing uh, money being pumped into their economy by people who travel there. Um, how, how do you feel about it? is that is that like a conflict or? Well, I I have a slightly different take on it. I think. We should, the, the story should be, you shouldn't fly if flying is having a negative impact on the climate mm -hmm. and there is no responsible action equivalent to what other sectors of the economy are doing to get in line with the Paris Agreement. Then I think if, if, if companies are not following that path, mm -hmm. it's quite legitimate for activists to say, you should not fly. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I think it's also incumbent on the sector to make sure if it wants to survive as a viable industry, yeah. it, it should build into its operating um, structures, its strategic planning, its long-term 
carbon reduction strategies mm-hmm. as zero carbon 2050. So we should really we should really look at those uh, airlines that do something at the same time for a carbon reduction and uh, uh, more focused on green travel and then that would be better to fly with them to these uh, to these um, uh, destinations is that what you're saying or yeah what i'm saying i mean my view is that if people if, if airlines don't follow this prescription yeah then it's not a question of people not flying they shouldn't be allowed to fly because they're making a you know their their contribution to climate change is too negative yeah Whereas I think if those companies, and I have a very laissez-faire attitude about this, Peter, I'm I'm not arguing for for um, uh, only regulation. I think we I think it'll be a combination of regulation mm-hmm. and enlightened management and pressure from people like the you know fly shame movement that hopefully will together um, over the the right time period. And it's got to be within the next seven to ten years that this has to happen, according to the to the science. Yeah, <laughs> I think that the companies that are prepared to do this, um, they should have a right to to operate, and people should be able to fly on them because they're not polluting, or they won't be polluting mm-hmm. in the same time frame as all the other industries who are making their commitment to a climate neutral future. Yeah, the, the only reason I'm asking is uh, I, I did an interview um, with um, a gentleman from the rainforest in Guyana, and um, obviously there's a lot going on there. Uh, they found oil there. The country is going to change massively. And they just say, well, the rainforest are really protected by tourists coming into the country. And if there's organization that say, well, you should not take these long flights and really travel only in your own country, that um, would give them almost um, a passport to really to, to, to open up those fields and get rid of the rainforest. And just, um, you know, uh, it's easier to get to the oil underneath, uh, the, uh, underneath the rainforest. And I think that would be a pity because those uh, obviously are carbon sinks. And there's obviously two sides of the coin. That's the only thing I would like to point out. Yeah, uh, no, I'm, I'm in agreement with you okay. on, on the role of tourism to balance economies mm-hmm. which find themselves uh, heavily fossil fuel dependent. Fair enough. I also think it's, you know, it's not a one-sided issue. I think it's incumbent on the governments of both countries yeah. to, first of all, to understand that the pumping of fossil fuel uh, is going to kill us in the end, and therefore they should factor that into their strategic planning. Yep. Um, and and build a mixed economy which phases out the fossil fuel in an appropriate uh, Paris time frame. Absolutely. But- I don't expect people to um, to suddenly stop doing the things which provide them with the capacity to to better themselves. I do expect people to understand that that has a limited time frame and and can't be seen um, as continuing forever. Um, and I also expect those, you know, good governance to look at alternative activities. And, and that goes to your point that tourism is a viable alternative activity. I know Guyana quite well. We're actually we, we're starting a program there for our strong climate champions. So I'm familiar with that background. Mm-hmm. And I kind of hope that if you have a strong local 
tourism community, which is planning the right kind of tourism, what I would call climate-friendly travel, yeah. the government, when it's making its own long-term strategies, mm -hmm. would be able to factor that in along with the obvious issues of the revenue coming from oil. And, and, you know, a good government would ultimately say one day that revenue from oil cannot be there, cannot be there, unless we find a technology which, which takes the carbon out, you know, which is what it's based on. Yep. <laughs> if, 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 you know, I have a very open mind. I'm not for prescriptive solutions, mm -hmm. but I think in the end, all governments will have to uh, stop pumping fossil fuel. So the government of Guyana would be well advised to nurture its tourism sector mm -hmm. and it's dependent, to go to your original point, it's dependent on long-haul flying for the most part. It is, yeah, it is. And, and I, I think that, um, you know, they're doing actually quite a lot of good things um, at the moment, but at a certain point maybe money talks and um, oil is well, money for uh, Well, yes, countries. and it does, it does for all of us. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 easy to... To, to say you have to stop doing everything. I did that when I was a student sitting in the coffee bars and, and, and sorting out society. Mm -hmm. But the world isn't quite like that. And to some extent, coronavirus has shown this. Mm -hmm. um, foot and mouth disease did the same sort of thing in the UK um, back in the 1990s, I think it was, yeah. when suddenly you couldn't have tourists going into the countryside. And and suddenly farms and, and, and small pubs and restaurants had to close down. Yep. And, and I think, you know, there's, a, there's a, a good side and a bad side also to tourism. It's a great provider as long as the, the numbers keep coming. Yep. If the numbers stop, you, you affect the whole of society. Right. And you mentioned um, that, that you work via uh, SunX uh, through climate-friendly travel, which is a phrase you just um, repeated as well. Yes. What, how, how, how do we see that? Well, it's, it's what I'll call a concept. It's a bit like green growth, mm -hmm. um, you know, to use a well-known well phrase. Um, it's a system of, of travel activity that we think all stakeholders could subscribe to whether they're, whether they're suppliers, companies, or whether they're communities, which are destinations, or whether they're travelers themselves, or whether they're governments. Um, and it's very simple. It, it says the travel should have three components. We're not telling you how to do it. We're just saying that you must find your own way to put these three components into your travel and tourism activity. Okay. The first one is that you have to measure it. And, and that doesn't just mean measuring the numbers and the revenues and pumping out those figures as we did at WTTC. Mm -hmm. We just measured the contribution to GDP, the contribution to jobs, the contribution to trade. Yep. What we didn't measure was the impacts on the other side of the balance sheet, uh, the impacts of too many tourists arriving in a country, you know, the over-tourism phenomena, that the tourists are using the water which should be used by local populations. Mm -hmm. Tourism is increasing the price of, of local accommodation. Yep. I mean, people should be factoring, but most important, you should measure the carbon impacts. And you should make sure 
that you have some sort of balance between the good things that you do and the bad things that you do. If you're taking the water of the locals for a golf course, yep. then you have to compensate for that. You have to make sure that you build and some of your profits go into creating an alternate water supply. Yeah. Otherwise, your activity is, is becoming positive for suppliers and maybe investors, mm -hmm. but negative for the people who are the ultimate um, um, hosts of the tourism mm -hmm. who are there when the tourists have gone home. Mm -hmm. but the, com the companies won't do that, though. The companies won't put money into that without being told that they have to. Um, yes, well, sure and, and govern governance has to make sure that regulation mm -hmm. um, A, encourages the good behavior, mm -hmm. and B, penalizes the bad behavior. But it has to be proper re regulation. You know, I'll give you an example. The UK has had this airport development APD, airport passenger duty, since 1990. Okay. And they say that it's for the environment. And they just it's just a you know levy. They put it into the general budget and spend it on anything they want. Okay. So there has to be a great deal of honesty in the measurement. And the honesty is the honesty that has to come because ultimately the measure it's not measurement for measurement's sake. It's measurement because in the end, we all have to contribute our carbon to the national carbon determination. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, that's, for me, the overriding issue in measuring is to measure carbon. But logically, if you are measuring some aspects of your travel, you want to measure, um, you know, things like the capacity management issue. How many people are you putting into a, into a particular place? What is the effect of that? And if it's negative, um, you shouldn't be able to do it without compensating. Who should regulate so this, if I may ask? Who you think um, should be the regulators of, of, of these uh, issues? Well, my hope is that smart companies who see they want to survive in the long term who have strategic plans, for example, when they're building an airport or and the plans go for 20 years, mm -hmm. the smart company should also have some bright people who are calculating the impacts. Right. Government should be producing first guidelines and secondly, directives which encourage good behavior and penalize bad behavior. Mm -hmm. So a good example is at the highest multilateral level, the Paris Agreement says you should be uh, operating in a fashion, a pollution fashion, and I'm summarizing here, yep. in a pollution fashion, which collectively ensures that the Earth's temperature will remain in Paris, they said no more than two degrees and ideally below that. And since that time, they've basically said, and I believe that it has to be no more than 1.5 degrees. Mm -hmm. But that 1.5 degrees isn't a magic number that somebody waves a wand about. Mm -hmm. It's an agglomeration of everybody's pollution on the planet. Yeah. So national governments then have to develop a 2050 carbon reduction strategy. Mm -hmm. And in Europe, the EU has such a strategy 
they're developing a climate law. Mm -hmm. uh, they basically have said until now that you must, by 2030, reduce your pollutants mm -hmm. uh, to 60% and by 2040 to uh, 40% and by 2050 to zero. And now they're saying, um, sorry, it's the other way around. It's by 2030, you have to be reducing it by 40%. Okay. And now the new commission is saying, actually, that's not going to be enough. It should be 50 to 55 percent. Right. So so government <laughs> is what you're saying should be the regulators. But at the same time, you say that um, when a scheme and, was... And, and national government. National government. Yeah. yeah. It's, this, it's national governments who file the national, the NDCs, which are the carbon uh, commitments that they make to reduce carbon, yep. to get to the 1.5. Every government has filed such a paper yeah. with the with the unf triple c right and i think that should be the guidance for the companies if a government says collectively in our country we are going to reduce our carbon by 40 percent by by 2030 yeah. intelligent companies that want to be in the mainstream should have a strategy which says the same okay um, Ideally, better. If, if, I may, if, I may, if I may ask something, you just mentioned as well that scheme in the UK where the money was not being spent, uh, where it should have been spent. So do you trust governments to really regulate this in a correct way? Some governments I trust. I don't trust the government of, of the UK. I, <laughs> I trust <laughs> centrist governments yeah. more than I trust governments on the extreme right or the extreme left and i wouldn't trust donald trump as far as i could throw him mm -hmm. and that would be not very far because he's very large that that's probably true and you you obviously you you mentioned that some government you you trust and you are collaborating at the moment uh, from what i understand and i was at the um at the uh, travel markets um, here in the UK, there was a meeting and uh, the government of the Malta, uh, you work with very closely from what I understand. Uh, you have a collaboration there. Could you tell me how that works uh, from your side? <laughs> it's wonderful. I mean, it's, it's one of those serendipity happenstance things in life mm -hmm. um, that has made the the difference in what we operate and or how we operate and how we can see ourselves operating. Mm -hmm. um, it, it basically started, um, if I can just give you the background to it. Sure. I have worked over, you know, in what is now half a century in as a bureaucrat uh, in, in international organizations. And I had a long-time collaborator in Malta who... I sat down and had a conversation a little bit like this. Okay. Um, and we were, I was running SunX as an NGO, uh, self-funding it, and, and quite frankly struggling to with, with a couple of collaborators and trying to build a conceptual framework and then support mechanisms for, for climate-friendly travel transformation. Mm -hmm. And my friend, Leslie Vella, who was the, the strategic director for the Malta Tourism Authority, yeah. he said, well, I kind of think this fits in with our vision. Why don't we see if we can't um, interest the ministry in it and the government in it? And, and to cut a long story short, we did. And what was the vision? Sorry? What was the vision that they had? 
Well, their vision was that they have to respond as a country to to that first of all that they have a strong belief in sustainable development. Yeah. Um, and that they have to respond as a company to climate change. And what I discovered during the course of our building negotiations over the past year with my friends in Malta yeah. is that Malta was the first country to put climate change on the UN agenda in the General Assembly. Mm-hmm. Um, Malta was the first was the country which put the law of the sea on the on the international agenda. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a really interesting place. It's a small island with a massive historical culture. Yeah. Um and and it's tiny, but it's a state. And it's a member of the EU and it's a member of the Commonwealth and it's sort of on the route for African um migrants uh, you know moving to Europe. It's it's an interesting microcosmic example of a of a modern state. Yeah, and and they liked the ideas that we were advancing, and we liked the way that they thought about it. So we we signed an agreement to take our organisation and actually base it in Malta. And the minister has said Malta is going to be a centre for climate friendly travel, and and we're actually working with the um, International Tourism um, uh, School, which is a, a part of the ministry, a university which is part of the ministry, yep. to start developing global education and training courses in climate-friendly travel. Mm-hmm. And and I, I hesitate to do this, but I've kind of strayed in talking. You asked me what are the components of climate-friendly travel. Yep. It's not just that it should be measured. It has three components. It should be measured, it should be green, and by that I'll say simply it has to respond to the targets of the Sustainable Development Goals. Yeah. And everywhere has a different uh, set of goals that are relevant to it. Mm-hmm. So it has to develop its own, you know, the Netherlands is different from, from Belgium, is different from, from Russia, yeah. from China. So they have to see... How which goals of the of the seventeen goals they fit into and the many targets, one hundred and sixty nine targets, mm-hmm. but they have to tag on to them. And the third thing is they have to be twenty fifty group. They have to be measured. They have to be green, and they have to be twenty fifty group, which means they must have a climate ambition, which ties into the to the Paris Agreement. Mm-hmm. And we're we're establishing in Malta the first registry for travel and tourism companies to register their climate ambition, mm-hmm. which is not unusual for other industries. Other industries have been registering climate ambitions since 2015, but but uh, travel and tourism has always kind of been, well, everybody but us, because we're special. Mm-hmm. But climate change doesn't deal with special cases. If, you know, if... if the planet heats and and the storms become more savage and the fires become more dramatic and and migrants become more widespread yeah it's going to affect everybody yeah. so i think if if we have a travel future where all travel companies and all travel communities are planning strategically for their travel to be measured to be green and to be 2050 proof 
we will find ourselves in the mainstream of where the rest of society is headed. Mm -hmm. and, and if we're good at what we're doing, we should be able to do what we claim we do, which is to be a leadership sector mm -hmm. and to actually, um, you know, the planes will be flying with, with synthetic fuel by 2050. And that will mean that, you know, you won't need flight shame because there won't be any pollution. Mm. The, the hotels will have um, reconfigured themselves so that they are using all of the modern um, energy, renewable energy, rather than fossil fuel-based furnaces. All of this, which the rest of society is doing, we will do it eventually. I would, you know, our argument is, if this is the right way to go, then we should be doing it ourselves and leading it. And you talk about uh, certification uh, or your registration. Does that mean certification uh, for companies um, in the travel industry? For me, you know, certification is a piece of the process. Right. Some companies will have things certified. Um, other people, you know, we, we, I've been involved in the certification programs, which essentially have been picked up by hotels. Yep. Um, in which they they bring in people who do energy audits and then they establish um, um, energy reduction programs and efficiency energy efficiency programs yep. and that's driven for the most part by a logical desire that you can reduce your costs through this mm -hmm. um, and and if you know if you want to use this as people will have to to demonstrate their carbon in the future yeah it will have to have some form of 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 stamp on it whether that's certification as we know it uh whatever it is it, it it's not going to be enough for people to simply say we have reduced there'll have to be some validation of that process yeah but it's a subset of the overall drive for climate-friendly travel. It's a subset of the overall commitment that this sector is plugged into the carbon reduction targets of whatever country they're located in. Yeah, and you mentioned, obviously, hotel energy uh, efficiency and so uh, reducing the cost uh, at the same time, so the cost for the hotel, which they can directly see in their back pocket, uh, basically, which is very, very important. Is that what you implement as well or is, would like to see implemented in other areas, airlines, cruise ships? Yes, I mean, I, when you say I would like to see, I, I would like to see people making their commitment to doing things mm -hmm. in the way that works best and and most honestly for them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the problems about finding grand solutions, and I've been involved in multilateral activity um, from my early days in IATA, which is, you know, one of the oldest multilateral organizations, it's an agglomeration of national activity, which in turn is an agglomeration of individual consumers and companies. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, my vision of the marketplace is the, the, the good marketplace, probably closer to what the Chinese would call the socialist market economy, mm -hmm. 
is one where you have regulations, but smart companies actually do the things that work properly for themselves and make themselves the most efficient companies in this respect. Mm -hmm. So if it's a hotel, these things tend to get names. They're a certification program or an energy efficiency program um, or a, a green growth program. And all of the above is is my reaction. But at the end of the day, mm-hmm. the the governance of the company and the governance of the community have to make a conscious decision that they want to have a kind of tourism which, at the end of the day, allows them to meet their carbon commitment. Sure, but if they save money by energy efficiency, they obviously going in that direction anyway because they they can feel that they this is the right thing to do, not only for the climate but also for their business as they're saving money. Isn't uh, would that be also very much applicable in the other industries? And instead of regulating it uh, as much, just saying, well, you'll actually save money and it will be better for your business to do so. Yes, I mean. <laughs> businesses behave in their best interest and mm. and historically you know this has been shareholder value exactly. uh, increase in profits so that they can and they would argue this is so that we can make our business a better business and it can survive yeah. and i'm all in favor of them doing that yeah. so long as the end end product is carbon reduction mm-hmm. I've described it elsewhere. It's not my phrase, but I like it very much. Anything else is rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. If you don't fix the iceberg, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter how you, how many SDGs you comply with. Mm-hmm. If your carbon count isn't right, eventually the existential crisis will be on us. And that's where there is a comparison, in a sense, with the, with the um, uh, COVID-19, yeah. that suddenly it's there yeah. and, and you can't deal with it because it's overwhelming. And that's, that's why I think the carbon count in all of this is the, the ultimate determinant. And that's we've created a registry for people to register their own climate ambitions on. We're not telling them you must have 40% by this date. Or you register yeah. what you want to do to achieve a climate neutral, i.e. no carbon, by by 2050, in line with the UNFCCC approach. That's if that, you yeah. believe... If you believe that you should be offsetting what you're doing, that you should be purchasing offsets, well, I've got a view on good offsets and bad offsets, but that's your decision as a company. Mm -hmm. What we are trying to do is to say to people, for God's sake, make that decision. Um, Everybody has a strategic plan if you want to stay in business. Um, and, And now make sure that in that strategic plan you have a block which says, zero carbon 2050 climate friendly travel and get some smart bright young people and have them you know charge them with with being the company voice on this because young people young people have been educated in ways that we have not and they they have an earth day at school they they 
understand a lot more about nature-based solutions than we ever did. Mm-hmm. And, and so our vision is that companies and communities would start to put young, bright people, um, and yes, ideally young, bright women, because we need more women in our in 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 our important positions in our sector absolutely yep. and um they would charge them and say you are the conscience of our company mm-hmm. you believe in this stuff um i don't know if you've got kids but i listen mm-hmm. to my daughter and and you know she's strident with me but it's good that she is because because i'm from a different generation mm-hmm. and that's why we want to train as part of our vision a hundred thousand of what we call strong climate champions mm-hmm. by 2030, and to have these people, um, you know, that works out as about um, 500 in every one of the 200 UN states, yep. and they would be transformation agents for this sector. They would be people who companies would say, hey, we want to hire this kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, there would be people who were writing articles in local newspapers, going on marches. Yeah. But we hope they will be marching for climate-friendly travel. Yeah, that's where your education uh, comes in, um, I, I take yeah, it. Yeah, and mm-hmm. we discovered in Malta, yeah. uh, you know, to take it back to Malta, and, and the minister who's taken this on board completely yeah. and, and says that the, the Minister of Tourism and Consumer Protection yeah. is the minister, um, and and uh, she says that um, they have a they have a, a school which is training people. They have about a thousand people a year being trained, mm-hmm. and we're currently working um, on a course, a diploma, yeah. a postgraduate diploma for uh, to bring young people in and to train them also by um, distance learning. So we expect to train initially two or three hundred people a year. Um, we have a facility on, on the small island of Gozo, which is defined as an eco-island for Malta. Mm-hmm. And um, we've been launching the courses this year. So all of that has come about because of this, this um, synergy we found between the thinking that we'd been developing at Sun yep. and, and the, the reality that Malta has to you know it has a brilliant 2050 vision Malta. Mm-hmm. i didn't know that till i started to work with them and and it you say gozo strong... gozo is where the um where the uh where the university is is that is that correct because i understood that uh, gozo received best of uh, communities and uh, culture as well yeah it's, it's the eden project yeah. uh, eu eden thing yes it yes it is on gozo it's a very beautiful small island mm-hmm. off <laughs> On, on, you know, as a, a part of a very, very small island country. Yeah. Um, and and they have a facility, a very nice facility, small. Yeah. It has room for 30 resident students, but we're building a distance learning capacity there. And web, web-based, uh, web-based educational system, is that what you mean? Or? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you're basically expanding from from the school system that's there at the moment into into this uh, web-based uh, 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 system. Um, how, how how do you see that? And they have a web-based system. Again, we're very fortunate that they're, they're enthusiastic like hell to to build what I'm calling a sort of division 
which mm -hmm. deals with climate-friendly travel. Right. And we're producing, as I say, the world's first climate-friendly travel uh, diploma, yep. which will which will meet the the normative standards of education in Malta and in the EU. So yep. it'll be a proper qualification. Mm -hmm. And they have a really nice little school which which doesn't have uh, full usage in Gozo and a bigger school in in the main island of Malta near the airport. Okay. And and how does that work exactly? This um, this um, uh, system. Um, how do you educate uh, via the web? How long does it um, does it last? Is it like a course? Is it like a year? It's, course? A, it's a it's a twelve month course. Twelve months. Yeah. Um, it's it's residency and and otherwise, um, you know, for people who take it distance, it has they have to do all of the tuition and and uh, perform projects and it's based on a course that i actually have given for two years to master's students in the university of ljubljana right um as as part of one of their projects okay. and i'm taking that we are taking together the course material and and redefining it so that it's aimed at, at graduates rather than master's students okay so it's a 12 months course and anyone can really uh, apply for that. You say residence only at the moment or is it is it global? No, it'll be it'll be open it'll be a global course the prospectus will be coming out in a couple of months and it's um, and it will be open to anybody um, we're hoping to get some EU support for that we haven't put in our proposal yet. Yeah. Um, but it fits in the mainstream of the green new deal the climate law uh, Erasmus, all of the EU stuff, yep. um, and we're working very closely with the ITS uh, to to put a proposal together that would, you know, we we will need new lecturers, we'll need uh, young uh, senior lecturers, junior lecturers, you know, a lecturer can deal with about forty or fifty students with all the assignments and if we're going to do two or three hundred a year we'll have to have half a dozen lectures but we're working on this quite i mean it's a it's one of our major projects at the moment yeah obviously education is of the utmost importance really and as you mentioned already you want to have young people trained in the right way so they can really make a change in society which seems the right way to go about it may i ask would be the cost to participate in a course like that have you got well, any it idea depends. i mean if if you're a European student, yeah. it, it, I think it's it's free, to be honest with oh, wow. you. I'm okay. not 100% yeah. sure, but that's yeah. what they tell me because because of the, the school is receiving Erasmus funds and therefore they have to make certain courses open to to EU students. Yeah. And if you're coming from abroad, it's not, I think they're talking about five to 10,000 euro a year. Yeah, obviously you mentioned um, Ljubljana in Slovenia where you did this course for two years. They actually took um, home as well the Best of Cities Awards, um, I believe. Yeah, um, yeah that, that, that's a fantastic place. I mean, they're really, they're, they're committed to to uh, sustainable growth and and you can see it in everything they do in that mm -hmm. city i'm very impressed with it. I, I believe that all education is is uh, free as well in slovenia correct or i i can't answer this i think the course that i did was a a special course for master's students where they had 
they receive grants from the EU. So for sure, mm -hmm. for EU students, I think it would be a, a, a free course. Sure, yes. that, that, that doesn't that doesn't really make a difference. I just um, I just um, I thought I mentioned it, but. Um, you also um, mentioned on your website, uh, your platform, uh, is there also for monitoring, analyzing irrelevant climate data? And uh, one of the things that you look at is impact investment. And do you do that for which entities and how does that work? I think I'd rather, I mean, this is all evolving quite quickly. Yeah. And, and maybe what our, our platform should talk about is climate finance. Climate finance, fair enough, yeah. Yeah, there, there's a whole world emerging, you know, of climate finance because yep. some of the costs of transformation will be massive. Indeed. And and the funds currently don't exist. Okay. And we are working um, with, with uh, colleagues, collaborators. We brought 35 people to Malta, mm -hmm. probably one of the last travel and tourism meetings that was held the last week in February, yeah. um, you know, to discuss all the issues around climate-friendly travel. And, and we have people in our network who are specialists in, in financing. Mm -hmm. We have a, a girl in China who's, who's very well known in this respect, um, some, some banking interests that we're working with. And, and it's, it's just a strand of what we feel is going to be important to be able to help those companies and communities who, who are going to transform. They will need to have advice on, well, where do we get the money from? Uh, yeah, that's, that seems to me that's extremely important and one of the main pillars, really, of what you want to, want to do, getting the money uh, together for it, if you don't have it already. And that's, that's really why I'm asking. Yeah, no, and we're just, I mean, basically it's a research activity and a, mm -hmm. and a knowledge. We have linkages with people who are, who are specialists at this. I have a company in Brussels that I work with here, mm -hmm. and, and their entire activity is related to finding EU financing for worthy projects. Mm -hmm. So this is the kind of people who we'd, we'd engage with, um, you know, to, to sort of build um a knowledge base of of useful climate financing activity mm, okay okay and um the maltese government uh from what i understand their the main investment is in infrastructure uh, mobility uh, at the moment are you involved and if so in which way are you involved to make sure that's done in the right way well uh, the the short answer is we're not directly involved mm -hmm. but because of the um, because of the new initiative with Malta, mm -hmm. Malta is creating its own new strategies, and we're able to input to that through our through our friends at the Malta Tourism Authority. Yeah, and we are trying to create a framework that will help, for example, Air Malta. Mm -hmm. Um, to ultimately become a climate neutral company, mm -hmm. um, and you know this is a small airline which which has um, it, it's a very good small airline, but it's not focused on this issue in the past. Yeah. So we've started conversations with them, and, and I must say they are exceptionally open to 
to looking at ways which will help them make the transformation. So, you know, that's the kind of thing. The bigger challenge is that Malta has a huge number of, of cruise visitors. Right. I hadn't realized this, but it has almost a million cruise visitors a year. Must have a massive impact. Or... It has a massive impact, but it's it's not historically, you know, this goes to the measurement issue. Yeah. It's not historically linked in with, with tourism figures. Okay. So they're sort of because they don't stay overnight on the island, yeah. they're they're dealt with as a separate category. But you know, just they 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 have all sorts of impacts, including the massive amounts of electricity they require when when the cruise ships are are in port, and whether that's coming from clean or dirty energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also sort of impacts on the on the marine environments and those kind of things, which they've looked at but haven't looked at in what I'll call a holistic way of how do we become a climate friendly travel community. And you say this is not um, this is not included uh, in the figures for tourism. I understand that a couple of years ago tourism represented uh, something like over fifteen percent of Maltese uh, yeah. GDP, yeah. which is and, massive, and I think. It is, and 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 then these figures are on top of that. Yes, on top of yes. that. Yeah. And do, yes. do do cruise ships, if I may ask, and if you do know, do they normally um, bring in money? We talked earlier about uh, tourism pumping in money into an economy. Um, some people said that cruise ships. Well, the, the people from the cruise ships eat on the on the boat. Um, normally, they don't eat in the local restaurants. Um, is is that something that you would like to comment on, or? Well, I mean, I'm happy to comment on it. I think it's, you know, it's, there's, it's like everything, there's no um, magic formula. I think when cruise ships come into an interesting place like Malta, yeah. there's a range of incredible historical and cultural things for them to see in a very short space of time. And I think you wouldn't go to a place like Malta and stay on the ship. So I'm pretty sure that the restaurants and the the local shops benefit from the presence of those cruise passengers. Absolutely. So there is a positive positive influx from from cruise ships uh, coming to Malta. Yeah, I think they measure. They probably measure the 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 value that's created. Mm-hmm. The question is, to what extent are they measuring the other side? The net, you know, as I say, the the impacts. Mm-hmm. And I think you know the. the particularly when you are beginning to see the situation. Again, I go back to COVID-19, you know, the cruise sector is incredibly exposed from from this kind of an activity. And I suspect that in the future, whenever cruise ships are landing in places, there will be much more um, medical quarantine, not quarantine, but medical examination so that the same way as when you go into an airport in china for years there's people there who are testing your temperature as you walk through the airport they don't stop you unless you are showing a particularly high temperature level Mm -hmm. but that's been the case in in uh, beijing national airport for years and i think people are going to be thinking about that in terms of cruise passengers in the future. Mm, fair enough. That, that is the, uh, that's the question I wanted to ask you, the things that can be um, uh, really learned from the approach um, to address the coronavirus. Uh, you've pretty much answered that already. Um, obviously, what you, you said about that has been mentioned by quite a few people, um, I, I should say. 
they really... Well, there will be reduced travel because, yeah. um, you know, it's pretty damn clear. It was clear to me from the beginning when, when my colleagues in the travel sector were arguing against restraint. Yeah. Um, this thing moves with people, you know, people transmit it. So you have to stop the movement. Yeah. In, and it's, it's incredibly transmissible. Yeah. So, so you know, we unfortunately, as a sector, find ourselves in the firing line, but that's just the consequence of the kind of business that we are. Mm-hmm. And and you know, closing down is is essential. Yeah. Um. And and we need to have plans for what happens when we're able to restart. Uh, I don't agree with the sort of speculation about it, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be one month, two months. I think as uh, Dr. Fauci, the, the American specialist said, mm-hmm. the virus will set the timetable. Yeah, we but cannot do that. Yeah, We can't do it, but hopefully, and hopefully at some stage we will get control again. Tourism will restart. But I think that, that, that there's a whole different set of parameters that are created. I think people will think about traveling about the impacts of of being away from home if something goes wrong. I think yeah. I think people will be taking out a lot more medical insurance when they buy their tickets. Yes. Um, I think travel companies will be offering incredible deals in order to get people on the move again. And I think, it, but it's going to take a year in my mind before, if, if all goes well, yeah. And within three months, we're out of this global lockdown situation. It's not going to leap back up. It's going to ramp up rather slowly. Yeah. And this is, I mean, I, you know, I'm obsessed with saying to people, build climate-friendly travel into the new norm. Mm-hmm. You have a chance to do that. The other crisis is different. I've described this in the article you referred to as it's like the frog that you put into slowly boiling water. Yeah. And, and, and you know, eventually the water boils the frog, but the frog doesn't feel it because it's slow and it's getting a nice bath. Yeah. And I think we have been given a warning that says this is what it's like if you have to shut down travel. And, and my view is if travel is not climate-friendly yeah. in 10, 15 years' time, People will be justified in saying you can't do it because you're polluting. So it's it's a, basically what you're saying. It's a warning. What's happening right now could be a warning as well. Um, for yes, yeah, yes. Okay. yeah, that makes yeah, total I sense think, to me. Yeah. And I think what the, you know, the industry is full of smart people. They will understand this. The, the historical problem is when something's like 10, 20 years out there. Yeah. You you make the the corporate or the governance choice that says, well, you know, we'll come to that a little bit later. Yeah. I think when Nick Stern did his first ever report on climate change, mm-hmm. um, you know, he kind of said that if we if we act now, it'll cost 0.5% of GDP. If we wait five, 10 years, it's going to cost two or 3%, 4%, 5% of GDP. Mm-hmm. And the differential is enormous. And that's the same for every company. Mm-hmm. So they should uh, really respond uh, accordingly, um, is what you're saying, yeah? Yeah, I, I believe so. I mean, I'm also realistic. I know that the a vast majority of them, it will take time to do this. But yeah. as you probably gathered, I'm not 
very much for sort of just throwing nice thoughts out there. I like to be upset. <laughs> yeah, outspoken is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, but when somebody says, so how would you do it? My answer is hire young people because young people are not a huge expense for uh-huh. a company or for a community, creates a strategic planning unit for climate-friendly travel yeah. and get them to be your source of information and help on this. Uh-huh. You know, you, you what, what would be the equivalent of the president of the United States task force? Yeah. You know, he still makes the decisions, sadly, but you know, he takes advice from smarter people than him, mm-hmm. which is almost everybody. <laughs> I get it indeed. Now, obviously, during this period of time, it's a very difficult period. Um, there's a, there's quite a bit of slowdown, really, in, uh, in, in, in clean energy. We had the International Energy Agency warning in the slowdown in uh, the transition. Um, we had Bloomberg New Energy Finance uh, saying this is a blow to global attempts to uh, roll out clean energy sources and this has a direct effect on travel, uh, electrical vehicles. Um, they say even that that they should really, you know, at the moment just not think about any of this and really focus on the coronavirus. Um, is this, has it had, had an effect on what you do and uh, what are your thoughts? No, it's, it's, I, think, I think that is just another argument from the climate deniers. Okay. I think, I think the truth is yeah. that this is a period, yes, there's a slowdown. Yeah. You can either slow down and say, oh, well, it's a slowdown, so you have to slow down your response on the climate, or it's a slowdown this gives us the opportunity to build for a new norm that's what you're saying obviously that's as much better and and, you know i think last week we saw in the united states crazy stuff but they reduced environmental protection regulations for Mm -hmm. new cars i mean it they didn't need to do it it's just right wing um mythology saying hey here's a chance to get a break that we don't have to make the necessary changes so quickly. And the Republican president who says, hey, yeah, that's good for business, good for my re-election, and to hell with, I don't care about the planet, let's do it. Now, I think decent right-thinking people will actually say, no, this is the time to strengthen our ambitions. And if you look at what the EU Commission, Commissioner Van Leyen is doing, actually saying previously we said you had to reduce by 40 percent now you're going to have to reduce by 50 to 55 percent because the the science has shown that things are worsening Mm. so i think smart people will make smart decisions and dumb people will try to keep making dumb decisions yeah sometimes it's the um, the dumb people that um that uh, makes sense to some people that are in power, unfortunately. Right? Yes, well, democracy is not a, always a useful, a useful <laughs> governance mechanism. <laughs> you're saying that while you're in Brussels, that's that. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, okay. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm okay with the way the EU is approaching these issues. I, I've oh. always been a strong believer in the EU, and, okay. and, and, you know, I think... I'm an Englishman by birth. I became a Canadian citizen some years back uh-huh. when I lived in Canada. Uh-huh. Uh, but I think my country of birth is is just mad. And I'm sure that it's going to feel it in the coming months um, by being outside the EU, unless the EU is incredibly generous uh-huh. and 
provides its multilateral support system um, just because you try to help people when there's a crisis. But I think it's crazy pulling out of Europe. Yeah, uh, well... We'll, 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 we'll see about that. Obviously, I'm Dutch. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't uh, think it's the best either. But what can you do? Um, not much. Um, is there anything you would like to say? First of all, I would like to ask you where can find people more information. Obviously, there's the website um, uh, from yourself, which uh, from what I have here is the sunprogram.com. Is there another website where people can find you? No, that's, I mean, we put everything, we've been using the website for, for all our stuff, even for our training, for, for, for um, the research that we're doing, everything's on the website, and my coordinates are there, my telephone number's there, and as you, yeah, I hope you can tell, I'm pretty open about, about sharing stuff on this. Yep. We have built a concept of what we call SDG 17 partnerships. That's what we actually did with Malta. Okay. The Sustainable Development Goal 17 says that people should partner to achieve the goals. Absolutely. And we've yeah. been developing a series of these over the past two or three years. And we're very open. I mean, for, for listeners who think that what we're saying maybe has some value, yeah. um, we're happy to 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 share in win-win relationships. Okay. That, that makes sense to me. And I see on the website as well, there is a uh, section there, partners and contact, and that's how they can get in contact with you and with your organization, correct? Yeah. And I hope you found this is, is helpful to to what you're doing Peter. absolutely no absolutely I, it stands fully with what i believe in myself and you're you're very open i must say as well um to the different uh, points that are going around at the moment um is there anything that you would like to um throw out there to the world anything you would like to plug no i think you know the message is climate friendly travel and if we make that transformation yeah there won't need to be questions around fly shame and that sort of thing because we'll be doing the right thing and we won't be polluting. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see, I, there is one key area. Aviation is so pivotal and I have probably more than anybody else been saying for years mm -hmm. that we should have a moonshot for a, a synthetic aviation fuel. I don't think, and there's a lot of work gone on in this from the industry, and actually the Dutch government has just passed a regulation to say that uh, 15, 14% of fuel by 2025 has to be synthetic fuel that, that airlines use, which is very advanced thinking. Yeah. But I think that the fuel manufacturers, the big oil companies, uh, the aircraft manufacturers, they haven't been working hard enough on this because if, travel and tourism is so fundamental to society, we have to find a way to make the planes fly without polluting. Um, IATA and ICAO, the two lead organizations on this, the first for the airlines, the second for the government, have developed a system, but it's very, very weak. And it's called Corsia, and it's a, it's a system whereby on the face of it, companies will have to obey carbon reduction regulations over a period of time. Mm -hmm. But the ultimate goal for 2050 is not that they have zero carbon, 
but that they produce half the amount of carbon that they're producing in 2005. Mm -hmm. And that's just not acceptable. And the excuse they give is, well, we don't have an alternative to fossil fuel. Yeah, that's what I've heard before, yeah. Mm -hmm. But there have been 300,000 flights already using um, some form of alternative fuel. Mm -hmm. The early ones were using what first-generation biofuel. Bio there was a big yeah. fight on that because it was taking land from, from yeah, agriculture. It's not the most sustainable way either, is it? It's not. But now people have, are looking at making fuel from waste, for example. And yeah. I think that there needs to be an intensification. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of going Elon Musk taking people to Mars, yeah. I wish to hell he would spend some time on finding a solution to the aviation system. Mm -hmm. um, you know, put some of that brilliant energy and mind into this kind of issue. BP and Shell, instead of exploring for new fields everywhere, mm -hmm. which by my definition are going to become um, stranded assets, uh, why the hell can't they put more research into finding a synthetic aviation fuel? Mm. Then we, that, you know, that that for me is a is the elephant in the room. I think I think actually that they're actually expanding uh, within those organizations. BP uh, is is actually doing quite a bit from what I hear in this direction. And but it's not enough. It, it never is enough. And uh, I know that Elon Musk with Tesla is having a massive impact as well, hasn't he? He has changed the whole car industry. Yes, I mean, electric vehicles yeah. are going to become the norm. It will be, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, it's, and it's great, and governments are regulating for that. Mm -hmm. And I think they have to regulate the same way. I think they actually have to say that by 20, 2040, mm -hmm. if you're not flying with synthetic fuel, yeah. um, you won't be given a license to fly. Yeah. You you say you, you say uh, twenty fifty before. I just want to um, uh, well, twenty fifty uh, is the date by which we have to be, in my mind, zero carbon. Yeah, a lot of, lot of young people, a lot of young people, especially from uh, Extinction Rebellion uh, around the world, they say twenty twenty five. Yeah, you know, I, I was young once, and I wanted those changes that fast. Yeah. And I'm older now, and I know that however much I wanted them, yeah, you can't make the changes in that time frame. Okay. You simply, you can't retool, you can't, without, without shattering society as we know it. I, yeah. what, what's, I think we, were, we are arguing at Sunex, we are arguing for progressive change, but yeah. one which produces zero carbon by 2050. And if you say 2050, you are not completely saying, oh, sorry, I couldn't make it, and we need another 20 years? Well, 2050 is not what I say. That's what the Paris Agreement Sure, no, no I understand, I understand. But, uh, I mean, if, if people say 20, 2050, we have, for example, BA, British Airways, they say 2050. Um, but by maybe, you know, by 2050, say, sorry, uh, we need some more time. Whereas well, you say 2025, I, they say, oops, you know, give us another five years. I think I think I like the EU approach. The EU yeah. says by 2030, you have to reduce by 50 to 55 percent. Okay, that makes by sense. By 2040, mm -hmm. you have to reduce by so much more. And if you haven't done it, then, you know, you don't have a license to operate. It's as simple as that. Yeah, that is very simple indeed. And that makes sense to me, um, I must say. And it's a long time. I mean, 
20 years in the future, if you remember Alvin Tuffler in his book Future Shock, he said that there's an accelerating pace of time. So 20 years in the future mm-hmm. is equivalent to 40 years in the past. So, you know, we, it's, it's, it's enough time. Yeah. And, and the young people are telling us we don't have the time. Mm-hmm. Move faster. Yeah. Our, our research and some of our colleagues, I have a very brilliant colleague in Australia, uh, Susanna Beckham, and Paul Peters, a Dutchman who, who was at our recent think tank in Malta that we held. Must be good. It's, uh, yeah, basically it's seven to ten, seven to ten years. And, and if, we, if we can get this transformation moving in that time, yeah. we have a chance. Okay. Well, that, that's, uh, let's uh, keep it at that. Uh, it was an absolute uh, pleasure to have you on the show. I'll put all the links uh, in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much for um, uh, being a guest. No, thank you so much for thinking of me. And and um, any time in the future, and any of your listeners, mm-hmm. you have the coordinates, please just contact us. Um, it, if we don't spread the ideas, then what we're doing is not worthwhile. No, you're absolutely right. And I, I really like that you're focusing on, on one of the aspects is education. I love that as well. So uh, I wish you all the best. And I think uh, I think it will be uh, fantastic. Thank you. And when the lockdown is closed and I'm next in London, Peter, yeah. I hope I can buy you a drink. That's absolutely, a- absolutely. You're most welcome to come to the studio as well, and we can do another podcast if you wish, and uh, just follow on to what we've been saying. And by that time, I uh, I am sure that uh, well, everything has blown over where the coronavirus is uh, concerned. Absolutely. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. 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 So that was the podcast with uh, Joffy Lipman. It was absolutely great to have him on the show. I will put all the links uh, in the show notes. You can find the latest news on podcasts.earth or a travelcompanion.com. You have been listening to Peter de Vries and thank you very much for doing so. And please tune in next time to a travel companion. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, and if at all possible, stay at home.